0: Take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we will pick up and read of Jesus' trial here um, and ultimate uh, judgment to go to the cross and, and uh, we'll pick up and read in verse, uh, we'll pick up and read in verse 33 and read all the way through chapter 19, verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we've just met, read a passage that is absolutely horrific. It's a passage that reveals the wickedness of man, the depravity of our own hearts. It reveals to us just how evil the world truly is. And we know, Father, that these things took place, not not because they're pretty, but because our sin was so great. The Lord Jesus, your only begotten Son, had to come into the world and to give his life as a ransom on our behalf. Oh God, we pray that as we go through this passage, as difficult as it is to read, that, Lord, you would help us to see Christ more clearly, to understand his sacrifice more fully, and to truly have hearts of thanksgiving for what Christ has done to save us. Help us understand this in a more detail, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, John opened his gospel with uh, these words, John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He opened his gospel this way because he's letting us know that the Son of God the one who is God from all eternity, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who dwelt with perfect and unadulterated fellowship with God the Father, took on our humanity, and he entered into the realm of time, and he came to dwell among us. And John says... We have seen his glory. We have seen his divine nature on full display. And if you've been here with us as we've gone through the first 17 chapters of the Gospel of John, we've spent many months glorying in the person of Christ, haven't we? We have seen his loving kindness. We have seen his humble heart. We've seen his willingness to serve the lowly. We've witnessed his divine power and his ability to to heal the sick with just a word or with just a touch and to raise the dead with the power of his voice. And we have gloried in that strength and we've gloried in his resolve to see as he goes and heads to the cross and he obeys the Father in everything. And John is telling us in these 17 chapters, behold, the the word was made flesh and we have seen his glory. And so we've seen in one sense the humanity of Jesus kind of in there. The word made flesh. But, but really these 17 chapters have really exalted this, the, the divine nature and the glory of Jesus as the son of God. And, and oh boy, we have seen it. We've seen it. And that's why I found, oh, I'm going to have a hard time getting through this and, and it's going to be a weighty, it's going to be weighty. But I found this passage so hard. I found it almost unbearable. I was reading. I was in the house. The kids were at school, and I was reading, and Nancy was close by, and I just let out a grunt. And she goes, what's, she says, what's wrong? And I, I shared this with her. I said, I don't, I don't know. I can, I can't read this. It's ugly. It's really ugly. And I was reminded that the world that we live in is really ugly, and evil, and filled with hate toward God, toward God. You see, the world will love its own, and the world will celebrate its own, and the world will have parades for its own will elevate its own sin, will elevate its own rebellion. The world will magnify itself and pretend that all is good. And it'll shine forth all of its evil right in the face of God and claim that this evil is good while they call good evil. And I think and I thought I think this is what John wants us to see and what he wants us to feel as this Son of God is contrasted with the wickedness of the world. I think this is John's aim and in showing us the Son of God. He's now showing us that the Son of God who came also came in the flesh and is fully man. And you don't see that any more clearly than you see it in chapters 18 to 19. That Jesus came in flesh and blood. The Word became flesh. Not only to reveal his glory as God, but he came in flesh and blood because he needed to die in our place as truly man. The Son of God, who by his very nature could not die, Psalm 90 verse 2, had to be truly man in order to accomplish for us our salvation. There was no other way than for us to be saved than for God to come and take on our humanity in order to go through this. Why is that? Because the scriptures tell us That it was a man, Adam, who lost paradise for all of those in him and brought condemnation for all. The reason we are in the predicament we are in, the reason the world is in the predicament it is in, is because of Adam's sin. And it takes a second Adam to regain Paradise lost. It takes a man to restore and to regain what we lost in Adam. You can read Romans 5 12 to 21. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and he is that second Adam. And he came to restore fellowship with himself. And it is restored by faith in him alone. Yes, Jesus is truly God, but he is also true man, flesh and blood, who represents us before a holy God. Hebrews 2 puts it like this, verse 10 and verse 14 to 15. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. The early church articulated it it like this in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. Ugly, ugly world. And so what happened to Jesus in this passage happened to the Son of God incarnate. I think you should wince and gasp as you read it. In fact, that was the hymn. I didn't bring a hymn book up, but Hymn 284 in the fourth verse. I can't remember what it's exactly what he says, but he talks about the shame that you feel when you consider that Jesus Christ went to the cross and suffered something am I right, andrew what about verse three? Oh, verse 3 well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in oh, four. Four. <laughs> read 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 verse four. I
1: think said 4 oh verse 4 the whole That's
0: thing I hide my blushing face. It's a blushing face and it's embarrassing. It's because Christ did that for us and because of our sin. And this, though, is what redeems us and this is what he came to do in order to save us. These things are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so, Pilate now, picking up in verse 38, is faced with Jesus' gospel invitation, like we saw last week, He abruptly ends the conversation with his cynical remark, What is truth? And Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. He actually says it three times in this passage. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And what Pilate is talking about, he doesn't know this. But Pilate isn't talking about the whole moral life of Jesus. He hasn't been with Jesus the whole time. But what Pilate is talking about is the accusation that they brought against Jesus, that he's a threat to Rome from the Jewish people. And Pilate's evaluating Jesus on that threat. And Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Now, Jesus was, in fact, not guilty of any sin at all let alone what he was accused of, but Jesus is perfectly holy. He is perfectly righteous. He is the Son of God. He is pure, without spot or wrinkle, without blemish. He is as bright and brighter than the midday sun in all of his glory. He is without sin, and yet Pilate is recognizing at least that he's not not guilty of what he's being accused of, but he is far less guilty of Anything else. And nonetheless, even though he sees Jesus as innocent of the crime he's being charged with, the wickedness of the world, in rather than letting Jesus go free and giving him the protection that he needed and dismissing the ruckus, bloodthirsty crowd, rather than seeking justice. Pilate shows himself to be weak and finds himself caught in between this rock and this hard place, and he looks for an escape hatch by referencing a custom that they had. So Pilate really doesn't want to deal with this. He knows Jesus is innocent of the crime, but he doesn't do justice. He tries to deliver himself out of the situation. Do you see? He's just thinking about himself, and he's thinking about his life, and he's wondering, how do I get out of this predicament? This custom, we don't know when it began, but it was probably practiced in order to commemorate the Passover because, remember, this is the Passover season. And so what they would do is they would come to, to the Roman emperor, and the Roman emperor would let them release one prisoner, one prisoner during Passover to commemorate their celebration of their deliverance from slavery, slavery in Egypt. Anyone you choose. We kind of, our president does a, a similar thing when, uh, well, every Thanksgiving he pardons a turkey, apparently. And then sometimes the presidents will pardon um, criminals after they're leaving office or, or something. So this is kind of Pilate's chance to do for the Jews what he, they've done every year. And so there is an option, and this is Pilate's. Pilate brings this option before him, which is showing you his weakness in the fact that he even puts Jesus here next to Barabbas, who is called a, a robber. And so he calls Jesus the king of the Jews, shall I release to you the king of the Jews? And this is a mocking of them. He's he's, he's mocking them and irritating them because they really wanted nothing more than to have their own king and to be out of Roman rule. And so now here's this weak man, this gentle man, as as he sees him bound up. Hey, shall I release to you the king of the Jews? Look at Look at him. So you can see the mocking he's putting right there before them in Jesus. Or shall I release to you Barabbas, Barabbas, who John says is a robber. Now, that word robber, it means plunderer but it's actually used in a much more broad sense in 1st in uh, century, 2nd century writers. It re, they use it to refer to a terrorist or a guerrilla fighter. And Mark actually identifies Barabbas in those terms in chapter 15 when he identifies Barabbas as A rebel who had committed murder in an insurrection. If anyone was a threat to Rome, it was Barabbas, not Jesus, and even Pilate knew that. And so they make their choice now the Son of God, innocent versus a murderer, guerrilla warfare, terrorist, Barabbas. Do you want, which one do you want? And they cried out, not this man. But Barabbas set the murderer free and condemn Jesus. And so, these the Jewish people, the children of Israel, the seed of Abraham, the ones to whom belonged all of the promises of God, the ones who claimed to be looking. For a prophet like Moses and a son of David who would come and set up the Messianic kingdom, instead of choosing their Messiah, they denied the Holy One of Israel. Martin Luther says they would rather have begged for the devil to go free. Peter puts it like this in Acts 3, 13-15. When he's preaching the gospel to them, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pontius Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. So heavy words. And so Pilate is forced to release Barabbas, and John goes on to tell us that he took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe, and they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. They punched him in the face. They punched him. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on him. Taking those date palms, any of you have that on your property? Big old thorns. They wrapped them together and they shoved it on his head. The thorns piercing his flesh and blood and bleeding. And they flogged him. Now, what kind of flogging was this? One of the commentaries I read said, there are three types of floggings. One is called the fust- fustigatio. It's a less severe beating. It's given for light offenses. If you're like a troublemaker or, or a hooligan as they call it in England. And then they give you a severe warning this happened to the apostles in the book of Acts when they came and they beat him and they said, don't teach in this name anymore. So it's kind of a light one, but it's, it's a flogging. The other kind is a brutal flogging that's given to criminals whose offenses were more serious. It's kind of the middle of the road. It's a bit more serious. And the third one was the verberatio. This is the most terrible scourging, flogging, and it's always associated with crucifixion, and uh, the commentary I read described it like this. The victim was stripped and tied to a post and then beaten by several torturers. In the Roman provinces, they were soldiers until they were exhausted, or the commanding officer called them off. For victims who, like Jesus, were neither Roman citizens nor soldiers, the favored instrument was a whip whose leather thongs were fitted with pieces of bone or lead or other metal. The beatings were so savage that the victims sometimes died. Eyewitness records report that such brutal scourgings could leave victims with their bones and entrails exposed." This is the beating that Mark refers to in chapter 15 and Matthew refers to. It's the beating that Jesus received after the final judgment that he is to be delivered over to be crucified. The flogging that John is making reference here to is coming before the final judgment. And so the flogging is of the first kind. So that means Jesus really experienced Two beatings. This is just the first one that Jesus experienced, and he's going to experience the third one in just a little while. And so Pilate went out again after flogging and mocking and putting a crown of thorns on Jesus. I think he wants to appease the Jews He wants to let Jesus go and he wants to say, okay, fine, I gave him the punishment, this first punishment, maybe that'll appease them and they'll just let Jesus go. And so he goes out again and he says to you, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Luke 23 says he did this in order to appease them. I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, and this is where you're going to see it all come together now, The, the opening chapter of John, the Son of God, and the incarnate Son of God come together. He brings Jesus out before them, and he says, did you see what he said? Behold the man, behold the man. This is is what John is driving to. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They don't even love a man who is in the world, let alone the son of God. They hate Jesus with all of the fiber of their being. They cannot stand to look at this man. And Pilate, he's beside himself, he's irritated, he says, you know what, this is my judgment, but take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And of course, they answered again, get this, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself, what, the son of God. And so you see, behold the man, and you see them recognizing this is the Son of God, this is God incarnate, this Jesus who is before us, who is bloodied, who is beaten. And they say he must be crucified and put to death. And Pilate cannot get out of it. Pilate is put into a corner He's put into a corner, and they cry out, crucify him. And the thing is, is this is exactly as God had planned it. And this is what you see in verses 8 to 11. You see, Pilate already having a twinge of fear when he said, what is truth? There was a bit of fear there embedded in that comment, and now he becomes even more afraid because they're now calling Jesus. I thought he was just against Rome, against Caesar, but whoa, now they're calling him the Son of God? And so now Pilate's getting even more afraid of who it is that is really standing before him. Pilate's thinking this is some kind of divine man. This, this is someone with maybe some kind of divine powers. I mean, he grew up hearing Greek and Roman mythology. He grew up hearing of gods that maybe took on human bodies and came down to earth, and now he's being told that this Jesus is a son of God in some way. Pilate doesn't get it, but now he's afraid. Who is this? And then he comes and back into his headquarters and he sees Jesus bloodied and standing there before him, humble. Where are you from? Now, Jesus doesn't answer, though. Why doesn't he answer? And I think Jesus doesn't answer because... He had already told Pilate earlier, and Pilate rejected it. And so now, Jesus is saying, what else can I say to you? I am the... He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And so Jesus doesn't answer him because there's nothing more to say. there's There's no one word or one response that will get Pilate, who is not interested in Jesus to believe. And Pilate is a man who lacks principles. Pilate is a man who only cares to maintain his power and authority. And he punishes a man who he knows to be innocent. This is the government of Rome. Lack of principles and moral guidance and May I say, this is, in many ways, our own government. J.C. Ryle, this is a little outside of the scope here, but I had to read this to you because this is kind of prophetic. I don't think he's trying to be a prophet here, but he's talking about Pilate, and he says this. What miserable creatures great men are when they have no higher principles within them and no faith in the reality of a God above them. The meanest laborer who has grace and fears God is a nobler being in the eyes of his creator than the king, ruler, or statesman whose first aim it is to please the people. Let us pray that our own country may never be without men in high places who have grace to think right and courage to act up to their knowledge without truckling to the opinion of men. Those who fear God more than man and care for pleasing God more than man are the best rulers of a nation and in the long run of years are always most respected. Men like Pontius Pilate who are always trimming and compromising, led by popular opinion, afraid of doing right if it gives offense, ready to do wrong if it makes them personally popular, such men are the worst governors that a country can have. They are often God's heavy judgment on a nation because of a nation's sin. Whew. That's, that may be why we're in the situation we're in. We've got leaders, even in our own country, that would stand with Pilate and alongside the Jews. And when they are faced and come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, they would call out, what? Crucify him, crucify him, away with him. And this is what Pilate does. Pilate, even though he knows Jesus is innocent, he beats him. He brings him again before the people. He presents him again to the people like he's Judge. He comes back into his judgment hall and then he struts in with his authority and power and he looks at Jesus and he says, You're not going to answer my question? You're not going to speak to me? Don't you realize, Jesus, that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then Jesus says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now, when I've referenced that passage in the past, I've always thought of it, and maybe you have too, in the context of of God's sovereignty over everything. In, in a sense, Jesus is saying, you know what, your authority is only your authority, but God is sovereign over everything. And in fact, that's true, right? God is sovereign over everything. But I don't think that's what Jesus is actually specifically making reference to. He's not making reference to God's sovereignty over everything, though it's true, and he's not making reference to God's sovereignty specific over, specifically over civil authority, which is also true, Romans 13. I think his point is that Pilate, this specific event, which brought me before you, my betrayal and all the events leading up to this, and put you in this place of authority to make a decision on me, whether to release me or to crucify me, is given to you from God. In other words, this is God's doing, Jesus says. This whole situation and me being before you with you having this decision, this is God's plan. This is not your plan, Pilate. This moment is determined by God. And that's why he says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have come into this situation passively under God's sovereign hand. And I'm before you now for you to make this decision under God's sovereign hand. And how you are treating me right now is sinful But the ones who have the greater sin are the ones that delivered me over to you because though they are being under God's hand and God's plan, they actively condemned me and brought me here. They have a a greater guilt in their doing to Jesus what they did. And he, specifically Jesus, is referring to, I think, Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin, the high priest had the greater guilt. Pilate is still guilty. Judas was guilty. The executioners are guilty. The whole world, Jew and Gentile, is guilty for rejecting Jesus. But Jesus says, "Those who gave you gave me to you have more guilt than others," and that is something we need to remember. Beloved, Paul says in Romans 2 5, that they store up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. In other words, there are things we do in life that are more deserving of punishment and incur more guilt than others. There are degrees. Every sin separates us from God, but there are clearly, in God's eyes, more heinous acts that are done than others. This is why when I look at our justice system as it is right now in this country and I I see our leaders in this world, this is what appalls me about our judicial system and the way things are run. Because things that are clearly evil and wicked, more so than other things, are not being rightly dealt with. And here... The world has a holy and righteous and good God in their midst and in their hands. And rather than doing what is right and good and letting him go, they choose to do the exact opposite of what they should and they condemn him. They condemn him. They're all guilty. We are all guilty but none, none will be without excuse. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they have entrusted much, they will demand the more. Jesus says that. And the Jews had everything given to them. And so after a response like that, we read, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. I don't know what he did to re- try to release him, But those days are gone. And they say to him, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so finally, Peter, who loves himself most, he fears losing his power most. He doesn't want Tiberius Caesar, who ruthlessly punishes dissenters. He doesn't want to be thrown out of his post. And so when he hears these words, he brings Jesus one last time, he sits down on the judgment seat on the stone pavement at Gabbatha, and he he says one more time, behold your king, and they cried out one more time, away with him, away with him, crucify him. then they say this. And this is what it all comes down to. And we'll conclude with this as we come to the Lord's table. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Beloved, that's what the world says. And the question is, What do you and I say about Jesus? Is our King in this world? Is your King in the White House? Is your King running in 2024 to be in the White House? Is your king right now, maybe some governor in some state that you really admire? Is your king in the Constitution of the United States? Is your king dwelling on this earth? Do you say with the people at Jesus' crucifixion, we have no king but Caesar? Or is your king one who is so mighty and so powerful and so loving and so glorious? and so beautiful, and so merciful, and so gracious, and so forgiving, that they delivered him up on his own and willingness to go and to be crucified, to die for your sins, and now your king is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Is that your king? That is our king, beloved, and he did this for us, and that's what brings us to the Lord's table because this is the supper of our king. This is our king inviting us to, to commune with him, to come to his table and to eat bread and to drink wine, and to remember what he did for us. He is our mediator. He stands before God, the Father, on our behalf. And so this, beloved, is reserved for those who have placed their faith in Christ. If you're visiting with us and you've heard the gospel and you've heard Jesus and he's called you to repentance to believe on him, and to trust him, and you haven't yet trusted Christ as your savior, then that means that you are not under Jesus's kingdom. And that means he is not your king. You are, you have Caesar as your king. And those who have Caesar as their king are not invited to this table. I don't know how to say it any clearer. You are not invited to partake of this supper if Caesar is your king. You are welcome to be here, you're welcome to hear and to observe, but you we would ask that you let these elements pass by because Jesus, our King, says that those who eat and drink in an undiscerning manner will be guilty and face a stricter judgment when that day comes. So let it pass by. But if you're visiting and you've believed on Christ and you've trusted him, uh, we would invite you to eat and drink with us. However, do not eat and drink without evaluating and confessing those hidden and outward sins. If you are holding on and hiding in, in, and ensnared in some kind of sin in your life, the table is there for us because we sin. But at the same time, be honest before God and recognize that sin and confess it. Confess your sin, acknowledge it, and the Lord Jesus Christ will forgive you of your sins. So we are to evaluate ourselves. So do that, beloved. As the elements are passed out, I invite the deacons to come up and Rory uh, to play for us.